Well, good morning, all. You're all spread out this morning. If you're out in the hallway, come on in. We have a lot to do today. Isn't it great that the Supreme Court gave us uh, permission to worship God <clears throat> this week? So thankful for that. We've been waiting and waiting. I, I, I'm glad for a good ruling, but who cares, uh, really? I think uh, Christ dying for the church gives him the right to tell us that we will worship him. So, um, but we still can't sing, so uh, we'll, we'll keep breaking the law there, I guess. <clears throat> uh, we, uh, I, I read a little article, not even by a believer, but just by a conservative guy who said, our nation has now become obsessed with safety, and once you become obsessed with safety, you can't live life. And that's really true. And the same goes in the church. Once we become obsessed with being safe, now we can't proclaim the gospel. Um, since when was that our goal? You know, the first 250 years of the church where they're undergoing persecution of an immense uh, variety. If they had stayed safe, the gospel wouldn't have gone anywhere. It wouldn't have gone anywhere. <clears throat> um, when Stephen was stoned to death and Christians were scattered all over the world. They didn't have to be scattered. They could have just denied the faith. Or they could have said, well, we'll stop meeting. Or we'll, we'll obey what you're, you're telling us. But instead they scattered. And it was like an explosion of the gospel all over the world. So I'm thankful for our Supreme Court. I'm thankful that they're probably the most sane bunch uh, as a whole in Washington. But uh, we don't need anybody's permission to worship. We are, um, we are mandated to worship. So... Uh, we're thankful for that, but we'll keep uh, keep on keeping faithful until Christ returns and we'll let him sort it all out. How about that? We are going to uh, try to cover quite a bit of material today, so we'll see how it goes. I don't know if I'll end up splitting it or not. We'll see what happens, but let's pray, and then we're going to uh, look at theology proper, the fourth part of this, Divine Attributes Part 2, God, creation, and history. That's kind of a lot to do in the next 45 minutes or so, so we'll see how it goes. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, this morning for the chance to once again get off the, uh, the, the busyness and the difficulties and the pain of the world and to gather with your precious people. Lord, this is really the closest thing we have to heaven on this side of heaven, and that is to be with your people in a place designated as holy, designated as a sanctuary from the world. We are here, Lord, to think on you, to look heavenward, to think on the things that are pleasing to you and uplifting to us. We thank you for your word, which reveals all that we must know about you. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so what we are doing today is Divine Attributes Part 2, and these are um, th this is some... Some big things. So I'm not going to necessarily read every verse associated with these concepts. We're going to try to kind of hit the high points here. If we don't make it, then we'll just uh, keep going next time. But we're going to jump right in. God is omnipresent. If you haven't heard a lot of uh, theological language yet, there are a lot of omnis. It just means all. He is all present, everywhere present. And our definition is, is that God is personally present at every point in the universe. He transcends physical dimensions of the created universe. I'll put it this way, it, God doesn't take up space. It's not that God is in every space. He doesn't take up space. It's just that he's everywhere. How do we understand that? 
I think the best we can do is Psalm 139, 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? You can't escape the presence of God in every realm. It's impossible to limit God to just one spatial location. 1 Kings eight twenty seven. But God will, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So no, no matter where you go, God is with you. Whether you're doing that which is righteous or doing that which is sinful, God is there. And he is, he is right there. This is the point of God's self-revelation. Um, for the believer, this is good. Uh, for the unbeliever, this is bad. Because the only way to get out of God's presence to judge them is to flee into God's presence to save them. Did you catch that? Because you can't run from God, so the only way to get out of God's presence to judge is to run to God's presence to save. Those are the only choices. So the the question would be then, is God in hell? What do you think? Well, if he's omnipresent, we would have to say that is his presence to judge. It is not his presence to bless. It is his presence to judge. Um, we see in the book of Revelation that the, the person overseeing the torment of hell is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. In fact, he's called overseeing the torment of hell along with um, uh, the holy angels. So can you flee from God's presence? No. If, if hell were a place to get away from God, it would be a relief to the unbeliever. But he, you will... They will uh, face God's judgment for all eternity, for all time. Uh, I kind of tease, sometimes you know, we sing the song that has the line in it, God turned his face away from Christ on the cross, um, that that was the, the judgment. Um, <clears throat> scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say God turned his face away. My contention would be is that Jesus Christ stared into the wrath of God and that he faced God in terms of judgment um, not that somehow God turned his face away. And, and I understand the sentiment, but God is omnipresent. Second Thessalonians 1.9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It means away from his presence to bless. It can't be that, away, that, that God is literally not present there. That, that can't be. That would mean that there's some aspect of our creation of, you, of the universe that God is not running or in charge of. So it's away from his presence to bless. And it's defined by the next phrase, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so hell is really the unmitigated presence of God to judge. The lake of fire run by and in the presence of the Lamb, the book of Revelation says. So hell is not biblically defined as the absence of God. It's the presence of God to judge. And so we want to be clear about that. And why does Scripture say that God is present in heaven when He's present everywhere? Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus said, we pray this way, our Father who is where? In heaven. Well, he is in heaven, so that is correct. We would view heaven as his throne room, as the center of, of his presence. Um, it's an expression of his exaltation above uh, all of creation. <clears throat> Even though it's true, we wouldn't say our father who is in Cleveland. That just doesn't have that ring of exaltation to it. He is a heavenly God. 
This is a declaration of his special glorious manifestation um, in the Old Testament. This would be analogous to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the Ark of the Covenant. And so, yes, our Father is in heaven, but he is omnipresent as well. And then we would say also that God is eternal. God is eternal. God is not limited by the passage of time. He doesn't age. He doesn't forget. He doesn't grow impatient as he participates in the outworking of his plan for redemptive history. And I'm going to, uh, I want to apply this to you in just, just a moment here, but just a brief summary of the biblical evidence. I just gave you some, some verses up there. God existed before the created order. That's obvious. Genesis 1 verse 1. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us this. God's actions stem from all of his pre-creation purposes. God didn't create the heavens and the earth and then say, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to do now. Creation is part of his purpose. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, Ephesians 1, 4 speak of doing all things according to the purposes of his will. <clears throat> Which is why we have to believe, by the way, in the doctrine of election. If you don't believe the doctrine of election, then God doesn't do all things according to the purposes of his will. He does a lot of things according to the purposes of his will. And that's not good enough. Before creation, God already knew what he was doing. His plan was laid out. So his actions stem from his pre-creation purposes in the fact that God is eternal. Part of the eternality of God, and I'm going a little bit fast. I apologize. You can get the slides online. Part of the eternality of God is that he will never go out of existence. Psalm 9, Psalm 60, 1 Timothy 1, 17, 1 Timothy 6, 16. All of these speak of the fact that God can't go out of existence. He can't die. He can't be altered in any way. Psalm 102 says that God does not age. And we, we tend to picture God as really old. I, I mean, I guess he is if you count eternity. But at some point, when do you quit measuring? Um, I think it's more difficult. Like we can sort of conceptualize going on forever and ever forward. You know, we think about standing in line at the DMV. That feels like forever. So we can kind of conceptualize that. But conceptualize going forever and ever backwards in time relative to us. That before creation, God had never not existed. There has never been a time where God wasn't. There's never been a time where God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have not enjoyed perfect communion and fellowship together. We can't fathom that. I think going forward, we have a little bit clearer idea. But going backwards, it's just uh, beyond us. So isn't it great that when he created us as temporal beings, meaning we're bound by time, that he also said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? There's, a, there's sort of a starting point for us. Uh, it's not the starting point for him, though. So he doesn't age. God doesn't grow weary or impatient. Second Peter 3.8, he doesn't count time the way we do. And this is, this is the classic passage that says that to God, you know, a thousand years like a day, a day is like a thousand years. Uh, what's the point of that? He can outweigh everything. And there's a great application to the eternality of God. As Christians, especially in American evangelicalism, we tend to think of the plan of God as limited by my lifetime. And here's the basic way it goes, especially if you go to a, 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 you know, a prosperity gospel conference or something like that. My life started out bad. 
I met Jesus. Now my life is good. And that's, that's supposed to be the scope of my life. How about this? I started out in sin. I came to faith in Christ. I mysteriously lived a life of increasing suffering all the way to the end of my life and died and went to heaven. Why is that more accurate? Because the scope of God's plan is not limited by your lifetime or mine. And so we fit into the broader picture. Now, praise the Lord for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth where all things will be made right. And maybe you live a life of suffering and you, you sort of wonder, well, that wasn't very nice. But you have eternity for God to make that up to you. But the eternality of God is one of those doctrines that enables us to be patient. You know, God has not obligated himself to draw all things to a resolution before the end of my lifetime. He just hasn't. He hasn't made that obligation. So we can rest in that. So um, that, that's why when a believer in Christ gets a horrible disease that they can be okay with that. All right, well, that's God's plan for me. I, I can live with that because in, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. All right? if, you, if you go out of this world in horrible agony and pain in 100 million years, is that going to still be weighing on you? No, not at all. So God's eternality we are reflections of that because what are you now? You are not eternal, but you're immortal. You had, you're not eternal because you had a starting point, but you'll never have an ending point. And so we reflect that in the immortality that God has given us. And so there's great peace in that. Wow, I've been married 45 years and I haven't had three happy days in that marriage. Okay, that's all right. God knows. Our, our happiness is not dependent on having the perfect life then we would also say that God is omnipresent. There's the omni again. He is, or omnipo, omnipotent rather. He is all powerful, all potent. And here's a good definition. God is all powerful and is able to do all that he in his perfect wisdom has decided to do. God is all powerful and is able to do that which in his perfect wisdom he has decided to do. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I think most people don't have a lot of trouble with the, omni, uh, the, the uh, omniscience of God. That'll be the next thing we look at. The all-knowing nature of God. What they have trouble with is the all-powerful nature of God. That he's able to do all things. So how would we define this? Well, God can't do what's contrary to his nature. Um, he is all-powerful, but he's not going to do things contrary to himself. He can't approve evil. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Now, how does that work? Because ultimately, all things originate with God, and there's evil in the world. Does that mean evil originates with God? No. Sin didn't originate with him. He has an agent, and that agent is Satan. In fact, we're going to see an example of this tonight on Sunday, uh, Sunday evening. What we're looking at, two parallel passages at once. I've actually never tried this, so you get to be my guinea pigs. We're going to preach from 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 at the same time. Because in 2 Samuel 24, the Bible says, the Lord incited David, and 1 Chronicles 21 says, and Satan incited David. Which is it? The answer is yes, all of the above. God will not look on evil, but he will use Satan for his own purposes. 
And so that's, that's, something, that's not something we judge. That's not something we look down on or up to. It's just, it's just a fact. He can't deny his promises. 2 Samuel 2.13, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, and he cannot tempt anyone. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And so when we talk about the all-powerful nature of God, what, we, what we're talking about positively is that everything he decides to do, he can carry out. Uh, you and I can decide to do anything. It's just we're not powerful enough to carry it out. I can decide I'm going to be a billionaire by tomorrow. Great. That's a wonderful decision. I wholeheartedly support that decision. I can't make that happen. But he can make everything happen that he decides to do. And the negative, he's not going to do what is contrary to his nature. He's not going to prove evil, deny promises, lie, tempt anyone. And certainly he's not going to do anything which is absurd or self-contradictory. When somebody asks you questions like, well, can God make square circles? Uh, Can God make a married bachelor? Can God do these absurd things? Can God make a rock too big for him to lift? Those sorts of things. The better question to ask in response is, can God save you? Because based on those questions, I'm not sure. Can God bring you to a point of repenting of these absurd questions? Because the bigger question is, can God forgive you? And the answer to that question is yes, through Christ. And why don't we ask those stupid questions after you've come to faith in Christ? Because then you'll find out how dumb they really are. So you always point them back to the gospel. God's not going to do anything absurd or self-contradictory. He is omnipotent. God is omniscient, all-knowing. God perfectly and exhaustively knows everything about himself and his creation, past, present, and future, actual and possible. That is a loaded statement, and we're going to take that apart. God perfectly and exhaustively knows everything about himself and his creation, past, present, and future, actual and possible. He knows everything about himself. 1 Corinthians 2.10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. God is the only being in all of the universe that knows himself perfectly. And we don't know ourselves. All existing things, he knows everything else. Psalm 147, 4 and 5, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So he knows everything else. Here's a thought for you. God has never learned. God has never grown God has never expanded his knowledge. He is the source of all knowledge. He's the one who wrote it. it we wouldn't say that, that God added to his knowledge because he's the one who has all the knowledge. It, that's, that only makes sense. He knows men's thoughts and, and hearts. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar you search out my path and my lying down and all acquaint, and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And so when, when you may be sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and he says, well, God knows my heart, you would affirm that. Say, yes, he does. But 
He will judge you for your heart and your heart is not good. Well, I I think I'm a good person. Really, every thought you have ever had in your mind, in your heart has been pleasing to the Lord. And James 2.10 says that if you have broken one of God's laws, you're guilty of all. So if you've had one wicked thought, you've had every wicked thought according to God's economy. So that is, a, that is a wonderful and a terrible thought at the same time that God knows everything we think. He also knows all things that are possible. Now this will blow our brain cells just a little bit. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 21, Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Did you catch that? God not only knows what's going to happen, he knows what would have happened. That he knows every possible permutation of, of what could happen. What that tells us is that he's in charge of all of it. And he makes decisions. He could have done the mighty miracles in Tyre and Sidon, but he chose not to. And so because of that, we affirm his sovereignty, his omniscience. And then he knows all of the future. Psalm 46, or Isaiah 46, rather, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my will. Now, this is, we're doing some crossover here. We have, we're saying God knows, he's omniscient, all things future, but we can't stop there. You can't stop by simply saying God has knowledge of the future. We have to go back to his omnipotence, his all-powerful nature, in that God causes all things that are in the future. Why does he know what's going to happen? Because he's the one making it happen. And let me put it this way. It's not as if God is just so powerful that he is 100% certain that he will make everything happen in the future. To God, there is no future past or present. To God, he has done all things. So put it this way, the new heavens and the new earth that are predicted and prophesied in Scripture, from our standpoint, it's future. From his standpoint, it's a done deal. It's already finished. And so his omnipotence and his omniscience mix here, so to speak. And when he says, my counsel shall stand, let's do it in terms we can understand this because he can point at new Jerusalem and say, see this? It says in Revelation 21 that it's coming down to earth. Well, there it is. It's right there. So there's there's great, great comfort in this. He declares the end from the beginning, meaning he has declared all things that are going to happen. This is a fun question. This is a fun uh, passage to read to Arminians. Do you believe Isaiah 46, 10, that God declares the end from the beginning? My counsel shall stand. I shall accomplish all my purpose. And they and their believers, they say, yes, I believe that. So God declares everything beginning to end. Yes. How did you get saved? Well, I made a personal decision. Wait a minute. Isaiah 46.10 says God declared all things from the beginning to end. Which is it? And so you get them in that, that theological knot there, and you can't get out of it. Um, at that point, pride takes over, and you simply are saying, well, uh, I believe in free will. Really? I don't. It says, my counsel shall stand, not yours. Not yours. So that's just a fun little tidbit. That's when somebody tells me, um, I believe I chose God. Just a little smile comes to your face. Isaiah 46.10 comes to your mind. God is omniscient. He knows everything. And that is very, very comforting to us.
Here's a term we're not as familiar with probably. God is omnisapient. He's all wise. Omnisapient. What does this mean? This is, we would call this kind of the interaction between his all-powerful nature and his omniscient nature. God employs his perfect knowledge in perfectly appropriate ways in order to bring about the enactment of his eternal decree for his glory. In other words, his all-knowing nature and his all-powerful nature come together to do exactly what is right every single time. He is all-wise. Now, what's the biblical rationale for this? Well, we see the wisdom of God in creation. The wisdom of God in creation, Psalm 104, Proverbs 3 tells us of this wisdom. We see the wisdom of God in, well, let me go back to this for a minute. The wisdom of God in creation. What do we call this in other theological terms? We call this general revelation. That you can show an unbeliever, how does the human eyeball work? You know, did did it evolve from a, a, a blob of cells and suddenly have all these parts? Nobody in their right mind actually really believes that. They have to be taught to believe it. You can, you can say, how is it that every year the leaves fall off this tree in my backyard and new ones grow? How is that? Well, that's how they evolved. So what happened when the first leaf fell off the first tree? How did it figure out for the next one to come? You can look at creation for, for years and years and all you, all you see is the wisdom of God over and over and over again. How is it that scientists have never found a planet just like ours? By the way, they never will. Why? Because then people could be on it and we would need a savior for another world so they never will. How is it that um, we have a universe that scientists have proven it takes the entire universe working in exactly the way it works to keep our little planet in exactly the right place? And if we move this much closer to the sun, we fry. And if we move this much farther from the sun, we freeze. How is that? That's the wisdom of God in creation. That he made all things just right. Okay, then we have the wisdom of God in redemption. 1 Corinthians, or according to that slide, 1 Orinthians uh, uh, 1, tells us that God's plan for redemption is perfect. And we accept it. That's going to be the whole theme of my message this morning, on Sunday morning, is that we trust the gospel. It is the only way. His, his wisdom in redemption. Aren't you glad that, that God didn't destroy Adam and Eve in the garden? Aren't you glad that the wisdom of his plan meant allowing sinful mankind to reproduce now to the tune of 100 billion people in all history, according to most estimates, 105 billion? And he's allowed that? He is all wise. We also see that wisdom comes from God. And I just uh, I, I listed a couple of references there for you. Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10. You can find that all over the place. And let's put all this together, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this. This would be a topic all on its own. But really, if you put all of the attributes of God together, what do you end up with? You end up with the fact that God is glorious. The glory of God is the composite view of all of his attributes and our amazement. We could define the glory of God as the goodness and greatness of God expressed in his attributes, manifested to his creatures, and responded to by them such that God is seen to be weighty, honored, majestic, and praiseworthy. 
The goodness and greatness of God expressed in his attributes manifested to his creatures and responded to by them such that God is seen to be weighty, honored, majestic, and praiseworthy. Why in his omnisapient nature did God not destroy Adam and Eve? Because it was his plan for billions of sinners to be transformed into worshipers who would then proclaim his glory for all eternity. The book of Job tells us a creation order, and that is that before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, before that, he created the angels. Why create the angels first? Because God had an audience for which to uh, show his creation. And what does Job say? I think it's Job 37, that the sons of God shouted and they sang because they were watching the glory of God at work. And that's why we exist. That's why salvation exists, is for us to be those who cast our crowns before God and give him glory. In fact, in the, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, one of the big words for the glory of God is kavod, and it means the weightiness of God. It literally, that he is heavy, as opposed to the lightweightness and the ridiculousness of anything else. He is heavy, he is weighty, he's honored, he's majestic, he's praiseworthy. All right, those are the attributes of God. Let's, let's move on to, let me kind of check my time here and see if we have time to do all this. We'll just do this as much as we can. Let's move on to the decree of God. The decree of God. Now we're into the section of God, creation, and history. We're in the in this section called the decree of God. And this is where you put the attributes of God in action, so to speak. A good theological definition of the decree of God is that it is the eternal plan by which God has rendered certain all the events of the universe, past, present, and future. It is the eternal plan by which God has rendered certain all the events of the universe, past, present, and future. Let's just do a little survey the Bible here. First of all, God's decree is a single, all-inclusive plan. You listen to, the, to a typical American evangelical preacher, you would think that God's uh, plan is all about me and all about you. That, that uh, we, get, we get a tear in our eye that God's plan was for me to become the manager of this McDonald's. And, and that, that was his big plan for me. Okay, that's fine. That's part of his plan. How about getting a tear in your eye because God's plan was to save billions of people and his plan is to have a new heavens and a new earth where the old has gone and the new has come. How about that plan? You being the manager at McDonald's is just so you can make some money to, uh, to provide for your family and give to the church as God does his overall plan. It is one single all-inclusive plan, which means, by the way, when your life and you look in the mirror is not going according to your plan, you can say, but I do know this, whatever's happening in my life is part of God's all-inclusive plan. My life right now is just part of the dark part that he's coloring in into his broad picture. And so there's comfort in the fact that it is a single, all-inclusive plan. I gave you some references there, but a good one is Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Same question you ask somebody who doesn't believe in the doctrine of election. 
Does God work all things according to the counsel of his will? Well, of course we believe that. That's what the Bible says. Well, it also says that an example of that is the fact that you have been predestined for salvation. That is an example. That's one thing. And I know that's hard for people to swallow, but that's because they're coming with preconceived theological notions. It is a single, all-inclusive plan. If you've been at Grace for any period of time, you have heard this plan over and over again, that as we preach from the Old Testament, you see the connections, you see the threads to Christ, you see the threads to the cross, you see the threads all the way to the end, that when God made, gave plans for a tabernacle, we see that that foreshadows the ministry of Christ. We see that foreshadows the coming temple, which foreshadows the coming millennial temple, which foreshadows a day when in the new heavens and the new earth on New Jerusalem, there will be no more temple because the people of God are the temple of God. And so you see this thread all through scripture, all one plan. And part of my job and and part of your curiosity as a Christian is to keep keep connecting those dots across from Genesis to Revelation. And the more of those that connect, the more strings of redemptive history you put together, the stronger that plan becomes and you understand it better. So his decree is a single all-inclusive plan. Where does his decree come from? Well, God's decree arises from his own purposes. It rises from his own purposes. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We could also look at Ephesians 1.6, 1.11. We looked at that already, Romans 11.34. Why is this important? Because God did not create the angels and then have a committee meeting and say, what do you guys think we should do next? You know, and somebody says, well, I think you should, uh, you should make snakes. Well, that didn't work out too well. No, that was the purpose of God. He did, he's never had a team meeting. He's never gotten feedback. He doesn't need it. He does all things according to his own purposes. And when you consider the fact that you being saved was part of his purpose, aren't you glad? That was his purpose. We also would say that God's decree is eternal. Ephesians 3.11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is very important that God's decree is eternal because it means it has always been the same and it's never going to change. There is no variation. Now, there is variation in a small sense in that God gives a a, a seeming choice, for example, to Nineveh in the book of Jonah, he was going to destroy them in 40 days and yet they repented, so he didn't. He relented. In fact, uh, we get nervous because the King James Version says he repented. It just means he turned is all that means. So does that mean that God's purpose changed? No, God's purpose was to save Nineveh, but he did it by means of the preaching of Jonah and by means of their repentance, but that was always his purpose. When you repented, when you told God, I can't believe what I have done to offend you and I am so sorry, was that your decision? In a human sense, absolutely. But he worked it out by, by placing the Holy Spirit's power in you, regenerating you and giving you the power to do that. Romans 3 says you would never do that on your own. There is no one who seeks after God. So is his decree eternal? Absolutely. Does that take away real human decision? No, not at all. If you decide to use uh, Crest or Colgate this morning, how many of you used Crest this morning? 
It, oh, wow, we're a Colgate uh, place, I guess. All right, so did you go, now, wait a minute, this is God's decree. If I suddenly switch over to Colgate, I can mess that up. No, not at all. Whose decision was it that you used Crest this morning? It was yours. And yet it was under the whole eternal plan of God. I haven't found pursuing that line of thinking really helpful. I, I've, never, I've never thought, if I can just figure that out, my walk with the Lord will be better. You know what makes it better? Is to know that everything you do is under that eternal decree of God. And we're thankful for that. I don't want to be responsible for every decision I make. I want to be thankful that God helps me and, and he leads me through his decree. We also know that God's decree is certain. Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. This is one of the parts of the decree of God that has led me to believe long before I ever read a theologian on the topic, led me to believe that when God told Abraham, I will form a nation from the people who come from you and that nation will last forever. This is what leads me to believe in the eternal nature of the nation of Israel because God said you'll last forever. This is what leads me to believe uh, if I didn't have a single Bible verse that says my salvation is secure and we have many, many verses, but just the nature of God, the fact that his decree is certain tells me that when I got saved, it was forever because he decreed it and therefore it is forever. It is certain. It's eternal. It arises from his own purposes. That's the decree of God. How about creation? We'll go as far as we can with this. Creation, we'll give a little definition here. God, by a direct act, brought into being virtually, instantaneously, everything that is. And I I said virtually instantaneously because we know he took six days. I want you to notice two features of this view. The first one is the brevity of the time involved. The brevity of the time involved. And so we, we would say that what has occurred at creation is relatively recent. It's, it's relatively recent. Another idea of this view is that this is direct divine working. There are no indirect means to creation. Are there indirect means to other things God does? Yes, there are. God is not speaking to you at this moment. I am. But when I read a Bible verse, I am an indirect means to speak the word of God to you. So there's an intermediary. Was there any intermediary such as evolution or any biological process in creation? There was none. It was simply God uh, bringing it about by his own word. So there's no intermediary. So anytime we say, well, um, you know, God used evolution. Scripture doesn't say that whatsoever that's a that's a an idea brought about by man so let's just start broadly here let's look at the theology of creation creation is the work of the triune god and i'll say this you can't read genesis 1 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and come to this doctrine from that verse alone we come to this from the whole of scripture all of progressive revelation but we see that creation was the work of the father 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from, for, for whom we exist. He is the Creator. We see creation being the work of the Son. John 1, 3, All things came into being through Him, 
and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then we see the work of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1, 2, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. I wish we had time to go into this, but I'm fascinated by the Holy Spirit's role in creation. Um, I believe that what this teaches is that the Holy Spirit's role in creation was to energize creation because this word for moving over the surface of the waters, it's a word that you would use of a hummingbird and his wings fluttering. It's the idea of moving is not whoosh, whoosh. The idea of moving is of energy. And there's an energizing that took place here and some, uh, some really top Bible scholars and even creation scientists have made the case that this was, this was the Spirit of God energizing the universe and providing that energy that we think is a mystery, but it's just the Spirit of God doing this. So I, I think that's a, a wonderful little sub-point. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read Colossians chapter 1, if you had to put some part of the Trinity, and I, there's no way to say that without being a, a heretic. We're, we're, try, we're not trying to divide the Trinity, but we, just can't, we don't have the terms to describe him. But if we are going to put some person of the Trinity sort of at the head of the train of creation, according to Colossians 1, you get a definite flavor that that is the Son of God. That Jesus Christ is, is definitely maybe the preeminent um, part of, of creation. And yet creation is a work of the triune God. Once you get past that point, you really can't do any more dividing. But it's just interesting that God the Father definitely glorifies God the Son as the creator. Creation was done freely as a result of God's wisdom and his will. And it was done for his own glory. Jeremiah 10, 12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. In Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. This is a great question to ask the the unbeliever. God made you, but do you know why? Well, no, God says in Isaiah 43, 7, that he made you for his glory. How have you been glorifying God lately? Do you glorify God when you reject his son? Do you glorify God when you reject the gospel? You're not fulfilling your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God. And in fact, um, and unbelievers like to hear this. In fact, did you know that you are made like God? You're made, the Bible says, in the image of God, in the likeness of God. You're like a reflection of God. How God-like have you been acting lately, except for worshiping yourself? So that's a great question for the unbeliever. Did you know you were created for God's glory? Revelation 4.11 you created all things because of your will. They existed, they're created, and that means worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory. We would also say that creation is distinct from God. We're still in the theology of creation here. It's distinct from God and yet always dependent on God. And we talked about the, the dichotomy of transcendence and imminence. The transcendence of God is that he is above and separate from everything. The imminence of God is that he is a part of everything. He's a part of your life. And so creation is distinct from God and yet always dependent on God. We would also say that God created the universe at a definite point. This is the 
key, key phrase where our Bible begins. In the beginning. This is the start of time. God created. That's the start of space. The heavens and the earth. That's the start of matter. You have time, space, matter. All right there in in verse 1 of Genesis 1. Even Jesus acknowledged that there was a definite point in time. John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So here's the the question then. Well, how old is the world? Well, if we use a pretty strict uh, time from Scripture, we can count back six, seven, maybe at the outside, 10,000 years. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound like what I was taught in school. Let me ask you a question. Can you actually conceptualize 4 billion? Can you conceptualize that? You can't. Oh, yeah, you can write it down. You can put a bunch of zeros down on a piece of paper. That doesn't mean you can conceptualize it. Can a billionaire actually conceptualize that amount of money that he has available to him? No, we can't conceptualize that. And so if you say all of whatever, creation or evolution, it goes back at least four, five, ten billion years, that is in essence saying there is no starting point, which is exactly contrary to Scripture. Somebody might say, well, we can't have all these people in the world in just a few thousand years. Mathematicians have proved this a thousand times over, that yes, you can. It's a compound interest, I guess, for people is what you would call it. That's very simple. Why do you think that Abraham lived 200 years? People say, well, that's just a myth. No, he lived 200 years or so because they were so close on the heels of the flood that people were still living a very long time like they did before the flood. Once the world changed after the flood, lifespans began to diminish significantly. But you can look at the, at the genealogies in Genesis and you see lifespans going down, 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 down. But there was leftovers. We don't know anybody who lives to be 175. That doesn't happen anymore. Why? Because we're, we're five, 6,000 years removed from the flood when that changed. So we just want to say the universe was created by God at a definite point. In the beginning, time began. We would also say God's creation was an instantaneous creation out of nothing. The Latin phrase for this is ex nihilo, out of nothing, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, and then the ex nihilo creation starts. Let there be, and it was so. Genesis 1.3, Genesis 1.6, Genesis 1.9. Let there be, what was the first one? Light. Let there be light. Where did light come from? God didn't have raw materials. He didn't drive to Lowe's or Home Depot and pick up batteries and extension cords. There was nothing to plug light into. He just made it. Now, the evolutionist might say, well, look, it took, uh, you know, it took five million years for the light from this particular star to reach Earth. No, it didn't. God just created the ray of light that got here instantly. Well, that's not difficult. He created Adam with the appearance of age. Why not create light with the appearance of age? Why not create everything else with the appearance of age? And they asked, did Adam have a belly button? I don't know, but he didn't have an umbilical cord. I know that. He probably did because his kids would go, Dad, you just look weird. You know, no, he was he was made with the appearance of age. And so it's out of nothing. And this is so important because what does this say about the power of God? 
He doesn't need raw materials. He doesn't need help. What does this say about the power of God over your salvation? Did he need your help? Was God crossing all his fingers and his toes and going, man, I hope this guy repents because then I can save him. No, he didn't need your help. He created you out of nothing. He created your salvation out of nothing. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. Not a new, we made a deal. A new creation. The heavens were created by the word of God. Psalm 33.6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The latest estimate is that there are something like 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars in all of them. I mean, there aren't enough zeros to, to figure that out. And yet it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. It is heavens. And there they are. He spoke, it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. Can you imagine that if there was even like a, just a second between space being created and then all the stars and the planets, that, that if you were flying around through space and you were witnessing this, that suddenly there's Jupiter and it's just there. Uh, that's just, just phenomenal for us to think about. Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. God's creation was instant and out of nothing whatsoever. Uh, the, old, the old joke is um, that Satan wanted to challenge God to a creation contest. And Satan said, you know, I can make a person just like you. And so God took some dirt, made a person. And Satan took some dirt and God said, no, make your own dirt. Only God can make things out of nothing. Very old joke, very bad. God directly created Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Uh, this isn't in my notes, but I want to talk to you about this for a moment. How did, God, how did Adam know that it was the Lord God who made him? You know, the Apostle Paul uses this moment as an example in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 that we beheld the light because we saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he uses this as an example. How did Adam know that God had created him? I believe with all of my heart that, that Adam, when he opened his eyes, that the first sight he saw was his creator, was Jesus Christ, the incarnate, the angel of the Lord, who had just formed him of the dust of the ground. What does this mean? I believe that the incarnate Jesus Christ was on the earth in the Garden of Eden and formed with his hands, the great carpenter, that which would be Adam. How else would Adam know? We even know in Genesis that God walked with him in the cool of the, the afternoon. How did they know to hide from God? Because they had been walking with him physically for all that time. That's my belief. It, it is not a salvation issue, but when it says the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground, the man became a living being, I believe that the first sight Adam saw was his Lord and was his God. That's just me. Genesis 2.21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. 
By the way, did you know that Genesis 2, 21 and 22 is the origin of the invention of anesthesia? Because it used to be that, that doctors, that I know it's hard for us to understand this. We, we have the phrase bedside manner. It used to be that doctors couldn't care less about bedside manner because you were an object of science to them. Their goal wasn't so much to heal you, but just to figure things out. And if you got healed in the meantime, that's fine. And there, were, there was the means by which anesthesia could be invented, but nobody cared to do it. But the Christian doctor um, went and he spoke to conventions and he spoke to groups of doctors and he said, the first surgery recorded in scripture, God put the man to sleep and he spared him that pain. And so we praise the Lord. When you, uh, when you, next time you see your anesthesiologist, say, did you know that you're the, in, made in the image of God, the first anesthesiologist? Just a little side note there. I don't know uh, how anybody can read all the texts that I just went through and say, I believe the Bible and I believe evolution. I don't know how you can do that. I don't think you can. I don't think it's intellectually honest and it certainly is spiritually dishonest. What's even more impossible is to reconcile evolution with the fact that God created everything instantly. And uh, by the way, Eve has no female parent. That's, that has to be an act of creation. From a purely evolutionary view, this can't be possible. So we take it at face value that God created as he would. We would also say God's creation produced after its kind. Produced after its kind. Genesis 1, 11 and 12. God made things so that when an apple gives you an apple seed and you plant it in the ground, it doesn't make aardvarks. It makes apples. Amazing creation. It means that when a husband and wife have a child, that child looks like them. There's a, a certain show uh, that uh, Sylvia and I like to watch, and in their attempt to be uh, politically correct, it's very amusing to us that you have parents of one particular uh, hue or color who have children of a completely different hue or color, and there's no adoption involved in any of that. It's just an attempt to be, and so we kind of laugh and say, wow, the, 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 uh, the laws of creation have been completely altered here. Uh, totally. You have kids who look kind of like you. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not. But at least you can say this is a little us. God created after its kind. Farmers count on this. They plant seeds expecting to get exactly what they planted. And so we're, we're thankful for that. God's creation was perfect at the end of the creative week. Genesis one thirty one. God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day, which tells us, by the way, according to uh, theistic evolution, theistic evolution says God got everything started. Adam is somewhere in there, but as things lived and died, lived and died, lived and died, things changed over time until we have what we have now. God started it. We give him all the glory. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that death enters in before sin. Well, sin is the cause of death, and so you can't have that. A fossil proves that death existed. Death proves that sin existed. So sin had to have a starting point. And if sin's starting point is after death, then that makes death good. Did you catch all that? So we have to, we have, to have God and his creative, uh, his narrative of creation be accurate. 
It was very good. Sin had not entered yet. God created the universe in the state of maturity. We've already talked about that. Adam and Eve created, they were created with the appearance of age. Plant life was created with the appearance of age. It doesn't say God planted the seeds and then they grew for a few years. No, he just made the plant life. Animals with the appearance of age were created and then the heavens and the earth in general were created with the appearance of age. So that's just how God did things. So we're going to stop there and what we'll, we'll finish up on some of the problems with the old earth view rather than the young earth view. And then we will go on from there to divine providence and spend some time on that because I think that's, that's worth taking some time on. I didn't think we'd make it, and so that's fine. Next time, if you're listening to this as a recording, we'll do, this is module one, session 13. We'll do part two of that, of session 13 next time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these truths and, and how fun it is to think about the fact that we serve the God who made everything. The ultimate creation is really everything. And we uh, reflect that image. We create little things. We make things here and there because we're made in your image. And we love to create because you are the creator. Lord, I thank you for the attributes that you have shown us, that you are everywhere present. You are all wise. You are all knowing. You are all powerful. Lord, I pray we would worship you as such that we would never have a dim and small view of God, but our view of God would just expand and get bigger and bigger and bigger such that we would give you all the more the worship that you deserve, the glory and honor that is yours by right. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. Be with us now as we prepare our hearts for a more formal time of presenting ourselves to you as living sacrifices in worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. That's a lot. You guys are doing good.